Welcome to Harmony Christian Church Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org. Last week, I began talking to you about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and just real quick, a quick overview, quick preview or um, review of what we talked about last week on the Sermon of the Mount. We asked the question, what does the Sermon of the Mount do in us? What is its purpose? What does it do in us? Number one, it shows us what it looks like to be Christian. It shows us what it looks like to be Christian. It's important to understand that the Beatitudes, that the Sermon on the Mount, are not entrance requirements into the kingdom, but rather they are declarations about the insiders. They're declarations about the ones who have come to know Christ, who have come to serve Christ, that this is what it looks like to be Christ-like. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Number two, it destroys our ego with the very first line that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. You know right away that there is no room in the kingdom for arrogance. There's no room in the kingdom for our egos and our pride. But the, one thing, the other thing the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount does it de- is it destroys our ego. And number three, the other main point that we had last week was that it becomes our measuring stick. That our thoughts, our intentions, our motives, our actions, everything has to be weighed and brought through the fires of the Sermon on the Mount. That we have to balance our life with are we loving our neighbor? Are we loving our enemy as ourselves? Are we walking poor in spirit? We're going to talk a lot about the Beatitudes today. Are we walking, are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness? When we pray, do we pray as the Pharisees do for recognition or do we go to our secret place? And we go there because he is the one who is in the secret place. What We use the Sermon on the Mount, we use the Beatitudes as a measuring stick, as a judgment, judging line for our lives and how we are walking out our Christian lives. And so those were some of the things we talked about last week. Today, I want, to tie, or, uh, I want to dive deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, but more specifically, the Beatitudes. So let's read them again here this morning. Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, going to start in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up, he being Jesus, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil things falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Last week I shared with you that that you can see easily the parallels between Jesus standing on the mount, delivering the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, and Moses standing on Mount Sinai, delivering the Mosaic Law. That it's, it's easy to begin seeing the parallels. You do realize the Bible, although it is 66 books, and there are a handful of different writers, the Bible is one book. The Bible is one story. It's full of many stories, but all of the stories fit together as a puzzle. And if you read the Bible properly, if you read the Bible with intention, you can find these threads all throughout the scripture. And you will begin reading the Old Testament and you'll go, wait a second, that sounds familiar. And you can jump back to the Old Testament and see where it began, see where the thread, see where the story began. That many times when you read something in the New Testament, the storyline actually begins way back in the Old Testament. And that's the case here. 
that Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and delivered to the Israelites the Mosaic law, the law that God gave Moses to declare to the people on how to live right, how to be a follower of Yahweh God. And now you follow that thread all the way to the New Testament and you see Jesus, who is superior to Moses, walks up his mountain and begins delivering a new way of being Christian. He begins delivering a new law, and this law is the law of grace. The better covenant than the law of Moses. It's the law of grace, and Jesus begins delivering this law of grace to the people on the Sermon on the Mount. Aren't you thankful for grace? John 1, hey, look at that, Cam. We're talking about grace this morning. Imagine that. John chapter 1. Verse 16 says this, it says, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ that Moses gave the law, but Jesus comes with grace and truth. Ephesians two says, by grace, you have been saved. It's not by works, least anyone should boast. Romans three, 23 says, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 14, one of my favorite passages, for sin shall no longer have dominion over you or shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law, but you are under grace. Jesus comes on the Sermon of the Mount and delivers the law of grace to the people, and we love grace, amen? We, we sang it this morning, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We love grace, but here's the deal. Grace comes, and it doesn't deliver a lower standard of righteousness, but it actually comes and delivers a greater level or standard of righteousness. You see, there's something that has infiltrated the, the, the church and the believers, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. Cheap grace. And what cheap grace says is that you can do whatever you want because it's all covered under the blood of Jesus. It says that you can, you can live however you want to. You can, you can sin, you can lie, you can cheat, you can do all of these things. But as long as you come back in repentance, Grace covers it. And grace becomes this blanket Jesus just throws over us that hides our sin rather than demolishes our sin. That, that grace, we've, that, that the church has made grace cheap, that has cheapened grace. But grace under the new, or I'm sorry, grace does not diminish the law. It does not diminish the standard. It actually raises the standard. So you look at the Sermon of the Mount. You look at the Sermon on the Mount. So grace, grace actually presents a higher standard of righteousness than the law does. The Mosaic law dealt with our actions. The Mosaic law dealt with how we do things. The law of grace that Jesus unveils at the Sermon on the Mount deals with our heart and our motives. It goes deeper than our outward actions. The law of Moses dealt with the outward. The law of grace deals with, our, with the inward. It deals with our heart and motives. Jesus didn't even talk about our actions on the Sermon of the Mount. He talks about our heart and our motives. It raises the standard of righteousness. It doesn't lower it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that mourn, the pure in heart, love your enemies. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who pray on the street corners, but go to your room and shut the door and pray. It deals with our hearts. Or I've, you've heard me quote this several times. It says in the Old Testament that if you murder somebody, then you'll have to deal with judgment. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us that if you have anything against your brother, if you have hate against your brother without, without any reason, it says that you are in, in trouble for judgment. It says that if you even look at a woman to lust after her, 
It says, if you even look at a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Grace does not come in and lower the standard. Grace comes in and actually hires the standard. It's the standard is actually greater under the law of grace than it was under the law of Moses. Don't you love grace? Grace is amazing, but grace is deeply misunderstood. Grace is amazing, but grace is deeply misunderstood. Many times, like I said earlier, we call it cheap grace. Cheap grace depicts grace as God's great cover-up for sin. We say, we say that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, which is true. But it, we might take that to mean that, that Jesus stands in front of us. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, and we're kind of like hiding behind him, still full of sin, still full of problems, but we're hiding behind Jesus. So, so God looks at us and sees Jesus, but there's still all of this sin that we're dealing with. It's kind of like the, your, one of your kids coming to you with a broken toy behind their back, right? They're, you're looking at them. They're, they're covering up the broken toy. They don't want you to see it. We think that we're still broken, but thank God Jesus steps in between us and the Father. And that is not grace. Grace, the blood of Jesus, the cross, doesn't cover your sins. It removes them. It casts your sin. He says, says in the scripture, it says, he casts your sins as far as the east is from the west. That you don't, you're not pretending to be holy. You're not pretending to be righteous. You are righteous. You are holy. Grace is that good. We're, we're in we're today's Halloween, the season of mask, right? Would you rather wear a Spider-Man mask or be Spider-Man? I would love to be Spider-Man. I'd be preaching upside down right now. <laughs> Spinning webs. If I see you falling asleep, yeah. <laughs> Bring you up front, that's right. No, would you rather wear the mask of righteousness, pretending you are holy, pretending you are righteous, or would you rather actually be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Cheap grace throws a mask over your face. Real grace actually makes you righteous and holy. You're not pretending you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are holy. You are without blemish. That he looks at you and sees not, we say this like this. He looks at you and sees Jesus. Really, he looks at you and sees you as he sees Jesus. Jesus was perfect. And now because of his cross, you are perfect. Jesus was righteous, and now because of his cross, you are righteous. Jesus was holy, and now because of the cross, you are holy. That is real grace. That is real holiness. That is real mercy, that you really are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is real grace. But with that grace comes the high standard. With that grace comes the high standard. Last week I told you that many, there's scholars, you can read commentaries where they'll go through the Beatitudes and they will actually say that Jesus, just like the Mosaic Law, just like Jesus never expected, or the Father never expected anyone to actually be able to follow the Mosaic Law, Jesus never actually expected anybody to be able to live up to the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to tell you today that is complete bogus. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says that whoever actually does these things, these sayings of mine, he actually expects us to walk in them. And what grace does is it comes in and empowers you to live up to the standard. Grace actually comes in and gives you the power to live up to the standard. The standard is high, but he gives grace to walk in it. So yes, it says this in Ephesians chapter four, verse one. It says that he, that Paul exhorts, uh, exhorts the church of Ephesus to walk worthy of the calling that they were called. That God actually expects us to walk worthy of how he has made us. 
Listen, you are holy. Your sins have been wiped away. That's not going to change. But he expects us to walk worthy of that calling. He expects us to live up to that standard of righteousness. Is there mercy when we fall and we mess up? Absolutely. Are we probably going to stumble and mess up? Absolutely. And there's mercy for that. But there's also grace to empower us to live up to the standard. Can I get an amen? There's grace to live up to the standard. You're thinking, what does any of this have to do with the Sermon of the Mount on the Mount? Well, let me tell you. Jesus was the greatest orator to have ever walked the face of the planet. He was the greatest interpreter of scripture. He was the greatest speaker. He was the most brilliant mind who ever put together a message. And that is evident here in the Sermon of the Mount. The Sermon of the Mount, like I said last week, the, the Beatitudes are not meant to be taken individually. They're not meant to be read as being disconnected or divorced from one another. They are not fragments and they are not individual proverbs. The poor in spirit and hungering and thirsting for righteousness go together. They are all part of the same puzzle. And Jesus, what he does in his opening lines of the Sermon of the Mount through the Beatitudes is he takes us on a journey through grace. He takes us on a journey of what it looks like to walk through grace. And the first step on this journey begins in Matthew chapter five. Let's read it together. Blessed, if you wanna go King James, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or how the passion puts it, what happiness comes to you when you feel your spiritual poverty. For theirs is the realm of the kingdom. So the first step Jesus takes us on through this journey of grace is to feel your spiritual poverty. What does that mean? It means we have to realize our need for God. We have to come to grips with who we are without him. Who are we without him? We are in spiritual poverty. We are poor in spirit. If we are not careful as Christians, we will think that our success is based off of our, our success in church. We will think that our being full of grace is based off of our spiritual disciplines or our good works, and all of that is what makes us righteous. But in reality, we have to realize who we are without him. So this was, this was the problem of the Israelites. This was the problem of the Israelites. They thought their righteousness was based off their outward performance. Let's go there together in Isaiah chapter 66. The Israelites were just coming out of exile and they were coming back into the land of Israel. And the first thing they wanted to do was to rebuild the temple. And this is what... Yahweh God says, he says this and starting in verse one, this is what Yahweh says, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where is the place where I will rest? My hands made these things so they belong to me, declares the Lord. What is, what is God saying here? He's saying you're wanting to come back and you're wanting to use these material things and build me this house, this material building but your heart, your inner lifestyle is still lacking. That you think you're gonna be able to get by by building me this miraculous building. What I wanna tell you is I'm not that impressed by the building. He's saying I'm not that impressed by the building that I'm the one who created all of the elements to build the building. I have a place where I rest. I'm not impressed by your building. So you coming in and building a building, but not getting yourself right, not getting your heart right, being in, coming in with your pride and your arrogance. He says that I'm not impressed by your building. And it goes on and it says this. It says, but there is one my eyes are drawn to, the humble one, the tender one, the trembling one who lives in awe of all I say. The New King James says the one who is poor and contrite in spirit. 
It goes on and says, but the one who offers a bull with no humility is like one who kills a man. The one who offers a lamb with no contrition is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. The one who brings grain offering with no heart purity is like the one who offers pig's blood. The one who offers incense with no sincerity is like the one who kisses an idol. And if we're not careful as Christians, we will think that our success in church, that we're growing, that we have a new building, we'll think that that is pleasing to God. Or we'll think that all of our spiritual disciplines are, are reading the Bible once or twice a week or, or you know, doing the right things, maybe our good works, that all of those things lead us into righteousness. And all of those things are wonderful. That's not what pleases the Lord. What pleases the Lord is when we approach him in humble, in a humble spirit. And we tell him, God, I am nothing without you. When we realize that we can have, we can have the, we can have the biggest church in the county. We could have all of those things, but if we didn't have him, it would mean nothing. We could do all of the right outward motions of praying, reading scripture, lifting our hands in worship. But if we are not broken on the inside and realizing our deep need for him, it means nothing. That to be poor in spirit is to come to grips with the reality that we are nothing without him. That we are in desperate need of Jesus, that we are in desperate need of the Father. They wanted to restore the outward forms of worship while refusing to acknowledge their sin and inward corruption of their heart. That our first step on this journey of grace is realizing our sin and our corruption in our heart and that poverty of our spirit. We see this in Luke chapter 18. I don't think I have it back there. Luke chapter 18, we all know the parable where the, ta- where the Pharisee and the tax collector come to the altar. And at first the Pharisee goes up and his prayer to God is, God, I thank you that I am a righteous man. God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector over here, that I fast twice a week. And I pray in the, in, the, in the city square. God, I thank you that I am not like this man. Then you go over to the tax collector. And it says that he's on his knees. And he won't even look up to heaven. And he's beating his chest. And he says, God, forgive me for I am a sinful man. And then it says that. Jesus looks, it says that God looks down. He says, the tax collector, that man, it says that he goes home justified. That he's the one who will go home justified. And it says, it says that blessed are though, let me, let me just read it to you. It says, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Does that sound familiar? The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom. The man who humbles himself will be exalted. The first step on our journey of grace is to be poor in spirit, to realize our need for God. But then Jesus takes us a step further on the journey. In verse four, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What's he saying? Not only do we realize our spiritual poverty, but it affects us deeply. Not only do we realize we need God, but it affects us deeply. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you allowed the Holy Spirit to highlight the compromise in your own life? And then it caused you to run to your prayer closet in repentance. When was the last time you mourned over the fact that you are not living for God like you know you're supposed to? 
When's the last time you let it affect you deeply? Sure, we go to church. We listen to all the Christian music. We'll even flip it from WWKI to K-Love every now and then, right? We do all the outward things we're supposed to. But the fire we used to have, the passion we used to have for him is not burning in us anymore. When's the last time that affected you? When's the last time it puts you off that you're not burning nearly as hot for him as you used to? See, not only do we need to be poor in spirit, not only do we need to realize we need God, there's lots of people who know that they need God, but it also has to affect us and it has to affect us in a deep way. We can't allow our sin and our compromise to become familiar. We can't allow our sin and our compromise to become stale and part of the norm. See, that's what, that's what happened with Ahab in the Old Testament. It says that sin became trivial to him. Sin became not a big deal anymore. It didn't affect him like it used to. And it became trivial. And what happened to Ahab? Ahab ended up marrying the most vile, the most impure, the most unholy woman ever to be written about in scripture, Jezebel. Jezebel was so vile that she lives into Revelations. And Ahab let sin become so trivial that he found Jezebel attractive. The worst thing we can do is actually not to sin. The worst thing we can have happen to us is that sin becomes trivial. That when we do sin and mess up and compromise, that it has no effect on us. The worst thing that can happen to us is not sin. The worst thing is that sin becomes trivial. And so we have to be poor in spirit. But then the next step in this journey of grace is not only do we realize our need for God, but it affects us deeply. Our compromise affects us deeply to the point that we mourn over our sin. And we don't allow it to become normal. We don't allow it to become trivial. We don't get to a point where we mess up and we just throw up a, my bad, God, thanks for grace, you know? It becomes real and it affects us deeply. First step is being poor in spirit. The second is that we allow our compromise to affect us deeply. We mourn over our sin. Blessed are those that mourn. The next step in the journey Ephesians 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, we walk through poverty of spirit. Then we walk through mourning. And now, we walk in meekness. Other translations say gentleness or humility. Why would this be the next step? The next step is meekness. The next step is humility because when we walk through poverty of spirit and we walk through the mourning, that humbles us. It softens our heart and brings us to a place of humility. It's amazing. Listen to this. It's amazing how opinionated we can be of other people when we feel spiritually superior. Right? Everybody is like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's amazing how opinionated we can be of other people when we feel spiritually superior. We become the Pharisee in the parable. Man, I'm glad I'm not like that man, the tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like that guy. We become spiritually superior. But when we have poverty of spirit and that moves us into mourning over our sin, it becomes incredibly difficult for us to cast the first stone at someone else. What happens 
when you skip being poor in spirit and you skip mourning and jump right into what everybody loves, the one that's, you know, quilted and sewn into all the pillows, the, the one that says being hungry for righteousness, hungry and thirsty. For, everybody loves that one. Everyone's like, amen, I'm that one. I'm hungry and thirsty for righteousness. What happens if you skip poverty of spirit and you skip the morning and jump right into being hungry and thirsty? You miss humility. You miss humility. You get really good at finding the speck in other people's eye, but extremely bad at finding the log in your own eye. You get really good at how other people, about, about judging how other people raise their kids, right? Like, eh, can you believe they let their daughter walk out with that outfit? It's awfully quiet. You're real good at judging other people's kids. Now, now you ignore the fact that your kids don't have any respect for authority, but man, their kids, they're horrible. Or you get real good at judging other people's marriages. You say things like, yeah, I saw that coming. We get real good at judging how other people spend their free time and real bad about assessing how we choose to entertain ourselves. We get really good at judging other people and really bad at recognizing the four by four sticking out of our own eye. Do you know why it's important to be poor in spirit and to mourn over sin? Because it causes you to walk in humility. It causes you to be gentle in how you approach other people's sin and mess ups and failures. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, listen to what it says. You who are spiritual, it doesn't say, go rebuke them. It doesn't say, go and make sure to tell them all the stuff they're doing wrong and all the bad things they're doing. No, it says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, least you also be tempted. That if your judgments come from a place of being morally superior and not from a place of restoration, then I'm willing to bet that you have not gone through poverty of spirit and you have not gone through being broken over your own sin because you are not walking in the spirit of gentleness and humility towards other people. That when we look at other people and see their shortcomings and their failures, it should not cause us to be excited that, hey, at least I'm not like that guy. But it should cause us to say, man, I want to come alongside of you. I want to lead you down the path of restoration. And it should cause us to want to come alongside in the spirit of gentleness and say, listen, I'm going to go through this with you. That walking through poverty of spirit and mourning leads us to a place of being meek. That blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That humility is the next step Jesus takes us on in this road, this journey of grace. That we walk in humility. If you see someone else struggling, I'll just read this even though I said it. If you see someone else struggling, I'm not going to throw rocks at them. I'm not going to come along, or I am going to come alongside of them and pray with them and seek God for restoration on their behalf. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the last one I'm going to cover today, verse six, everyone's favor. And everybody said, thank God we got to the good one, right? <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. After you have been broken, after you have felt deeply the compromise in your life and you've allowed yourself to mourn over the sin, after you've been humbled and walk in humility and meekness, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. That after you've seen your own compromise and depravity, it causes something to get inside of you to say, man, I, I know that I've been in compromise, but I am hungry to be righteous. I am thirsty to walk worthy of the calling that he has called. It causes us to desire holiness and righteousness. And I'm not talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I'm not just talking about coming to church, that if you come to church, you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. I'll tell you that some of the most vile people on the planet sit in a pew every Sunday morning. Not in our church. In others' churches. But that doesn't make you hungry for righteousness. I'm talking a hunger and thirst for righteousness that says, God, I'm so hungry for righteousness, I don't care what I have to lay down. I don't care what things I have to stop entertaining myself with. I don't care what people I need to disconnect myself from, what influences I need to stop being influenced by. I don't care what it looks like. I am hungry for righteousness. And whatever you ask me to do, whatever you ask me to lay down, my answer is yes. That that journey of poor in spirit and mourning and humility leads you to a place where you are so hungry to look like Jesus that you will lay down everything. You'll pay whatever the cost is because you are so hungry for righteousness. This is the journey of grace Jesus takes us on. We're poor in spirit. We mourn over our sin. We walk in humility and it leads us to a place where we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We say things like, God, I don't care what you have to do. I want to be right. God, I, don't underst God I, I understand my spiritual poverty, and I am broken and humbled before you. I am thankful that you have washed me clean of your blood, by your blood, but now I am hungry to walk righteously. I am thirsty to be everything you have called me to be. That we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Paul, would you come up? I love how every blessed statement, every blessed statement that Jesus gives is qualified with a reply. If you allow yourself to be poor in spirit and recognize your need for God, then you inherit the earth or you inherit the kingdom. If you allow yourself to be broken over your sin and poverty of spirit, you won't stay there long because great, the great comforter will come and restore you. If you allow the rock to humble you, instead of being humbled by the rock. The Bible says you inherit the earth. And if you hunger, listen, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled to overflowing with righteousness. The every blessed statement, Number one, turns upside down everything we think it would mean to be blessed. But if we're willing to walk through the fires of the Beatitudes on this journey of grace, he promises us that we will be filled. He promises us if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled to overflowing. You are not blessed because you are poor in spirit. You're blessed because he won't leave you that way. You're blessed not because you've sinned and you're mourning. You're blessed because when you've allowed yourself to feel the emotion and the contrition of sin, then the Holy Spirit comes in and comforts you and restores you. That he 
doesn't leave us poor in spirit. He doesn't leave us in mourning. He comes along and he restores us when we're willing to take the journey of grace. stand with me this morning. Looking around the room and I know that there's many of us who maybe be finding ourselves at different stages of this journey of grace. Maybe you're one this morning who who has You know, maybe there's some here this morning who have never accepted Jesus, who have never seen their need for a savior. I want to tell you this morning that when you allow yourself to be poor in spirit and you realize who you are without him, when you realize your great need for him, I want to tell you he'll come in and he'll fix every broken place in your life. Every broken part of your heart, he'll come in and restore And if you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you this morning that he, if if you come to know him and you accept Jesus into your life and you realize your need for him, he will come inside of you and there will be such a joy and a peace and a, a rest that you have never felt in your life. That you will be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But maybe you're here this morning and you know you need God. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you've allowed sin to become trivial. You've allowed your your brokenness, you've allowed your your compromise to become, you've become numb to your compromise. And it's just not that big of a deal anymore. It's become trivial to you. I pray that this morning the Holy Spirit will come in and will highlight those areas to you. And will highlight those areas to you so you will become broken in spirit once again. That the sin and the compromise will not be a little thing to you anymore, but you'll realize what that sin and compromise does is it, it places this wall between you and the Lord. Actually, you know what? I want to say it like this. Because there's nothing, there's nothing the love of God can do to separate you, not even your sin. So, so I want to say this, say this a different way. What that sin and that compromise does is it doesn't allow you to live free doesn't allow you to live free of guilt and shame when you let that sin and compromise become trivial trivial, and it doesn't allow you to walk in the righteousness that grace gives you, that grace empowers you to walk in. So if you maybe have been caught in a sin cycle and you haven't allowed that sin to affect you then this is for you today. Or maybe you're on the journey and that's not you. That's not your story, but maybe (laughs) this one may affect a lot of people. I know it affects me. Maybe you've become real good at finding specks in other people's eyes, but real bad at dealing with the plank in your own eye. Maybe you've had a heart where you've come against people because of their sin, rather than wanting, having a heart of leading people into restoration and gently guiding them back on the road. Maybe today the Holy Spirit's coming in and he's dealing with your prideful attitude, with your arrogant attitude. And he's coming in in today and he's humbling you. And finally, maybe you're here this morning and you're on this, this path and you're at the path where you're hungering, 
You're, you're at the spot where you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And what a sweet spot to be. What a wonderful place to be on the journey where you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Some people hear a message like this and they don't like it because there's conviction. But those of you who are on this journey where you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you actually like it when somebody comes in and meddles with your stuff. Because your heart is to say, whatever it takes, God, whatever it takes, I want to be right before you. I want to walk that path of righteousness. So maybe you're here today and you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I want to declare today that he's going to come in and fill you with what you desire. So wherever you're on the path this morning, there is healing for you and there is grace for you. We're going to take just a moment this morning and allow you to respond to that stirring you feel in your heart. If you'd like to come forward to the altar here and have a moment with the Lord up here, then feel free to do so. If you need to just sit right where you're at and allow the Holy Spirit to do something in you, then you do that as well. Go wherever you need to go, but whatever you do, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you to begin to highlight maybe where you're at on this journey and to begin walking that path of grace.
we are righteous, and then he gives us the grace to walk in righteousness. Amen? Amen. You are righteous. You are holy. You are blameless. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that grace is better than we ever could have imagined. Thank you, Jesus, that you restore us, and you make us new, and you make us whole. God, that no matter where we've been at in our lives, no matter if we even have fallen today, God, that there is grace to bring us back to you. There is grace to bring us back to the path of righteousness. God, we thank you for grace this morning in Jesus' name. 